Hello, everyone. Welcome back to another week of Concessions with Jared, myself, and a very special guest, Clara Broach. This week, we're covering Richard Linklater's Before Sunrise, which was an excellent pick by Clara for us to all swoon over. This is one that Clara has enjoyed for a good while, and I've only recently seen, and Jared has actually only seen for the first time, specifically for this pod, which made for a great pick for her to be able to be the Resident Before Trilogy expert in the room. Yeah, also, neither me nor Jared have seen the next films either, so we don't know where this is heading, where she has the uh, benefit of hindsight. If you've been enjoying what we do so far, please feel free to drop a like, review, follow on the podcast, wherever you do your listening. Also, you can find me at X at Dan Concedes, and Jared can be found at Threads at Jared Concessions. We'll be sure that this blossoming parasocial relationship goes beyond just the next sunrise. Also, as a sneak preview for next week, we'll be doubling up on some Ethan Hawke fare with First Reform, so keep an eye out for that next Monday. As always, thank you so much for spending time with us, and we hope you enjoy our chat as we discuss 1995's Before Sunrise. Welcome to Concessions. I'm Jared. And I'm Dan. And I'm sorry to everyone. We have uh, fallen to the SJW agenda and the podcast has officially become political. We have brought in a woman. Hi, Barbie. <laughs> we have a, a guest here, uh, here at Concessions for and in the very first time. It's not just another idiot boy. Uh, we have Clara here joining us from about eight blocks away from my apartment. Clara, say hi to the seven people probably listening to this. Hey. Yeah, <laughs> um, where did you find Clara? Oh, on the streets. Literally on the streets. Actually, literally on the streets. On uh, Of hope. Yeah, there, <laughs> there's uh, some volunteer work that I would do on Mondays, and she showed up to it one time, and we just immediately... Uh, clicked and started talking about stupid bullshit and i was like if you like talking about stupid bullshit i've got an environment for you and i've got a friend you also need to meet called jared because he's also dumb jared i loved in the first episode you guys talked about like how you met and how you two like just fell into friendship and it was so funny and endearing because i felt the exact same way when i met dan and it was just funny because i was like oh like i feel like we both like really get to see the essence of him and I felt connected to you too. Cause I was like, we must both love the same movies and the same books and the same wit. And we're going to get along just fine. So Jared, what's important there is that you are doing great at setting up parasocial relationships. So keep that up. We need that. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. <laughs> I think we all need that. We need like a few of those types of people that are in our lives that are constantly making those connections that maybe should, maybe you shouldn't. It's all, it's all good. I need to be clear though, that, that meet cute that I described in the, the Barbie episode, I want to double down on my comment that we were totally obnoxious in that social setting. There was seven or eight other people in direct earshot and the two of us only talked to each other in our gigantic voices and only about movies. Yeah, we were the only two people that were charmed by each other in that moment. Uh, yeah. yeah. Yep. It, in fact, it, it went so far the other direction for everyone else that I've never spoken to any of them again. <laughs> it's a filtration system. <laughs> yeah. If they want to talk to me, they could talk about movies. It's not my fault. <laughs> Listen, I don't have a lot of time. And so I'm going to be talking about the things I like. 
<laughs> so if you don't like it, move along. Because life is brief. We only get to run into each other for very short moments and then we die. We all die. Yeah. Brief encounters. <laughs> you and me. Speaking when is the next time we're going to see each other? Probably never. I, I could die tomorrow. Who knows? I could die mid podcast. Stay tuned. Who exactly. knows? Ooh, that would um, get a lot of views. Or speaking of uh, death and poisoning ourselves, Jared, what are you drinking over there? Yeah, I'm go I'm I'm a little bit uh basic over here. I have a longboard island lager. It's available at basically any national chain grocery store that you can find. This one came from Safeway, I believe. Um, nothing fancy, just delicious. Thank you. Please sponsor us, Longboard Island Lager. <laughs> For a second, I thought you meant your your beer was long and bored. I was like, what? just like this podcast. Oh man, probably. Uh, so what what are what are we drinking over here, Clara? What what was your idea here? Wow, thank you for giving me credit. I <laughs> really appreciate that. We are drinking tequila sunrises. And why on earth would we be drinking tequila sunrises right now? I don't know. You don't know why we're drinking tequila sunrises on it this. May have, it may have occurred to you before. <laughs> there it turns absolutely out absolutely no correspondence, no link. Turns no out it's a pure coincidence. No, no, that... no. It's fate. <laughs> it's nothing to do with the fact that we are covering before it has sunrise. Nothing to do with choices or consequence. It has everything to do with we are we anti. We're anti consequence here at uh, Concessions Podcast. Uh, but yeah, we're drinking tequila sunrise. We were just hopped down at a convenience store trying to find something, and she's like, "Why don't we get tequila sunrises?" Because we're doing before sunrise. I'm like, "You're the smartest person I've ever seen in my life. This my is incredible." God. This is the nicest you've ever been to me. Well, it's because I'm public facing right now. You don't want to hear the shit I say when we get off the air. He's so mean. <laughs> right uh, before we started recording, we were mostly talking about like the level to which Dan's dog is attracted to his asshole. Right, correct. Which, which, which we've learned that I need to stop showering to kind of lure her in with my pheromones. Yeah, you'll do better next time, I'm sure. Yeah, I'm working on the it. The climate's um, changed. Well, so uh, in enough of the highbrow. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, Jared, what have uh, what have you watched or read or experienced in the last week that's worth uh, telling to the people? Well, I watched Before Sunrise a couple of times, and in between, I read the screenplay, and then in between that, I was texting both of you about it. And I think that's the only movie I watched this week. I've been doing a lot of reading. Uh, I just finished a book today called Nightmare Fuel Ooh. Uh, by Nina Nesseth. And this is a book about the science of fear and how it relates to our enjoyment of horror films. Wow. And so there'll be a chapter on the the actual biology, the 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 physiology, whatever's going on in your brain that creates these uh, you know, threat responses, that sort of thing. There's sociology from around the globe about how different cultures uh, will kind of manifest fear in their in their lives and how they respond to it. There's a, chap a chapter about uh, audible fear versus visual fear and how we process those differently and how films take advantage of that. Few, few other uh, really juicy ones in there, but every time she brings up a new topic, she backs it up with a, a solid critique of a study, uh, you know, an actual published study or two. And she kind of pokes holes in, you know, their hypotheses and, and how, you know, there was some, some bias in there. Obviously many scientific studies are, quite biased towards just certain perspectives kind of like this podcast usually is before <laughs> before Clara decided to join us today and <laughs> yeah it, it was in every single time she backed something up with 
some some data from a study. She also mentions one, two, three horror films where uh, you know it's it's very well defined within that that film. You know this facet of fear. And anybody who likes horror movies, anybody who likes psychology, uh, this will be candy for you. It's called Nightmare Fuel. Really good. Ooh, I'm actually sold. I, I would want to check that out. Please sponsor us, author of Nightmare Fuel. You know, that's so yeah. funny to say that, too, because I was just talking to a coworker about how they read something about how, like, we're not making children's entertainment scary enough. Like, if you look, you know, in the past, we have, like, very terrifying stories that are directed towards children. Mm-hmm. And, like, part of it is just, like, you know, society's changing, like, morality's changing, et cetera. But there is a lot of science behind like the enjoyment of being a little scared in contained areas because you're able to like process that emotion, imagine yourself, like what would you do? It's like almost planning, you know? So I think that's really interesting. Yeah. I'd be, I'd be really interested in reading that. It's like uh, exposure therapy essentially. Well, yeah, it's, it's practice runs and yeah. it's also the same ways that we like, you know, roller coasters. We like to be, you know, scared, but safe. Yeah. Scared, but safe Cont- contained scared. Yeah. Um, so what about you? What have you uh, checked out in the last week? Oh, my God. The last book I read was called Pete the Cat. I like my white shoes. I'm so sorry. I love my white shoes. And it is so good. I think actually every adult should read it. I have it like memorized at this point. <laughs> and it's all about this cat. And he's got these white shoes. And he just keeps stepping in these like other piles of stuff. And it changes the color of his shoes. And then they get all wet. But the moral of the story is that no matter what you step in, you just keep walking along. And singing your song because it's all good. And you know what? It got me through the week. I'll tell you that. <laughs> As someone who owns a ratty pair of white shoes, I can deeply uh, relate to this. There's also a song that goes with it. Oh, and nice. I play it on the uke for the kids. And then they, my, my coworkers hate me, but the kids love me. <laughs> well, your coworkers aren't your clients, so that works. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They don't pay me. <laughs> the children Damn. do, actually. What about you? What what was the thing that really, you know, kind of actually that tickled your brain the most this week? Yeah, that's that's interesting that you mentioned like stories for children that aren't uh they're kind of sanitized, I guess would be a word. Uh I watched this animated feature called Boy in the World. It's a Brazilian uh animated film from like oh like eleven or thirteen. I'd have to double check that. Um it's basically it's got this very simple, like childlike style of animation, and uh the story is quite simple where it's like this boy it lives this uh, rural existence out in Brazil. And he's like in this like, like idyllic, you know, pastoral existence. And his dad goes off to the big city to, to work. And he like, he is afraid that his dad like abandoned him and disappeared. So he goes after him. And then it's just about 60 minutes of the horrors of modern industrial capitalism, uh, all played out for, uh, for like something that like a six year old can understand. And it shows, it also shows like the boy keeps meeting himself at like different parts of his life as someone that's getting sucked into this machine and like interacting with himself. And like, it's like the inner child kind of, kind of experiencing what his adult life is going to be. And then his adult life reflecting back on his inner child as well. Um, and it, it kind of, I don't want to spoil it too much because honestly, I wouldn't be opposed to doing an episode on it either, but it, it has sort of a cyclical uh loop at the end that i really like and it's also only like 70 minutes which i've come to appreciate a good like very very short film from time to time um definitely worth a watch yeah that sounds amazing and i I feel like i can think of a director who who could make a pretty kick-ass 
live action version of something that uh, dwells so much on the passage of time and what that does to a person and uh, kind of what it does to their relationships and, and that sort of thing. Who, who's and that? I think that uh, is a fella who was once young and is now less young, but he still still seems pretty, pretty spry for his you know, early middle age one Richard Linklater. Pretty spry for a white guy. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, I'll I hear be cut his, out. I'm sorry. I hear his, his his new movie is like really, really kicking ass on the festival circuit right now. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the the fellow from Top Gun Maverick, whose name I can't recall, but who seemed from that movie pretty much poised for superstardom. Apparently, this is going to be his breakout role, and this movie is going to crush it. Oh, wow. uh, it's called Hit Hitman. Yeah. And, but we're not here to talk about Hitman. What are we here to talk about, Dan? We are here to talk about a nice little film that Clara recommended to me that I watched about two-ish months ago. And then uh, from that, I was like, this is a great movie. Great decision. Do you want to come on the podcast and choose a movie? And then she chose this one, too. Uh, it is, uh, yeah, it's Richard Linklater's Before Sunrise. So it's written by or directed by Richard Linklater. It's written by both Richard Linklater and Kim Kreisan. Do you know Kim Kreisan at all, Jared? I, I think that it's pronounced Kreisan. And I, Kreisen. I, I I watched a lot of the supplementary features uh, about this movie and uh, on the Blu-ray and that sort of thing. I, I think it's Kreisan. But nope, I, I, I'm not familiar with her whatsoever other than uh, having you know written this movie. And... Uh, Linklater realized very early on in writing it that he wasn't able to without a, 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 a lady's perspective and oh. they collaborated that on that. <laughs> Almost like you need a little estrogen in a room full of testosterone. I don't know what you're talking about. Oh, yeah. uh, but anyways, moving on from whatever that weird divergence was. Uh, starring just, I mean, there are other people in it, but it's all Ethan. Ethan Hawke and Julie uh, Del P. I don't speak... European, so I don't know how to pronounce that. Delpy, Delpy. Don't look at me. I've always heard her referred to as Julie Delpy. That's Del- how it. Just it how just it sounds looks. so like like officially American. Julie Delpy. Emily in Paris. Like I want to French it up, but I don't know how to take the word like the letters D E L P Y. Julie Delpy. It probably is, honestly. Um, and I'm my yeah. You gotta say it in the tongue. Yeah, my Chicago ass accent. Delpy. Timothy Timothy. But but anyways, um, so yeah, that's we're doing before sunrise. If you guys haven't picked up on all the very subtle hints that we've been dropping. Um, So Jared, we'll go person by person. We'll start with Jared. Um, What's your previous relationship with this movie, with Richard Linklater as a filmmaker, with either of these actors or just like the legacy of this film altogether before coming into today? Sure. I had never seen this movie before, nor any of the subsequent entries in the trilogy this movie has to be amongst the most well-liked movies in existence that i had never seen before (laughs) one of the just the biggest gaps in my my viewing history a movie that i have always promised myself i would get to and then the same thing happens where uh, with uh, a really well-liked tv show where like Mm. well if i watch it it's not committing to one movie it's committing to three movies and there are lots of single movies that I haven't seen. And so uh, it always, you know, it always has that like sort of, you know, it seems a little bit more daunting mm-hmm. uh, to, to watch before sunrise because I know it's only a third of the picture. Right. But 
you know, previous to this, I had seen Richard Linklater's uh, rotoscoped films that we talked about when we were, we were talking Bakshi before. We yeah, brought yeah, up yeah. Richard Linklater is probably the most uh, kind of well-known voice that you know doing those types of Bakshi and rotoscoping movies. Uh, I had seen Dazed and Confused, loved it. Boyhood, loved it. And I think that's it, just those four. And I've always known that the Before Trilogy is often considered you know, his magnum opus and people love this movie. It's so many people's very favorite movies. It's it's uh, got 100% on Rotten Tomatoes, which is like pretty rare for a movie that has that many reviews. Mm. So I've always known it's so well liked and uh, I'm, I'm really glad that I got to watch it for the first time, knowing that we were going to like deep dive on it and close watch it because mm -hmm. the movie deserves it. And then some uh, quick question before we get to Claire's experience with this. You haven't seen School of Rock? Yeah. Oh, wow. I had no idea that he, he wrote that or directed that. I don't know if he wrote it. And not hardcore. <laughs> I, unless you live hardcore and I'm not living hardcore enough in the world of Richard Linklater. Uh, <laughs> I, I'd, I'd be interested in finding out if he was kind of a director for hire on that or if that's something that was like a pet project for him because it seems so different in a lot of ways compared to his movies where, you know, he's the auteur behind them. I'd love yeah. to find out if that, that was a, that was something that was really special to him that kind of, he, you know, that came sprung out of his mind or if that's just something he was hired to direct. Yeah. I mean, he didn't write it, which is unusual for him. So that might at least indicate what you're uh, suggesting. Yeah. That like, it's, you know, one for them, one for me, maybe that was his one for them. And then after that, he did boyhood. I think, I think I'm getting that timeline, right? Is that Could the timeline? Be. Um, he did Boyhood before. Oh, did no, he? Boyhood was definitely later, but I don't know if it was like the next one. But anyway, if I looked that up, Clara, what is uh, your relationship to this one? And why, when I asked you, hey, you can do whatever movie you want on a podcast with us, you chose this one. Um, theme of the night, I'm greedy. And I knew that if I chose a trilogy, I would be requested back. <laughs> <laughs> I'm thinking long term, baby. I'm a long term goal setter. Okay. Um. This movie was introduced to me by one of my piece of shit hipster friends. <laughs> and shout out to you because I'm going to make you listen to this. Uh, he's like a really cool composer in L.A. working on some scary movies. Ooh. I should tell you about some stuff coming up that he told me not to tell anyone about. Oh, yeah, please. But he was like, Clara, you got to watch this movie. I don't know why you haven't seen it. Like, you love all of these other movies. Like, can you just trust me? And I said, of course. So I give it a shot. And I hated it. And we'll get into it. I hated it. But then he's like, you got to keep watching. And I said, all right, I'll give it a shot. But I'm really resistant. So then I watched the other two. And then I was sold. I was sold after I saw the rest. And, and for the record, neither me nor Jared have moved on to see the other two. And that is by design. We're the only two that don't know where this is going. That's interesting. because And yeah, we'll get into it. Because, you know, I quite liked it on its own. And also this movie was well received and there was what the, the sequel didn't come out for another 10 years 12 years or something like that so it's still alone it was never like it wasn't necessarily understood to be part one of a trilogy when it came out so it was it was always like at least its original design seemed to be more of a standalone film yeah totally and i want to get into that a little more uh as we talk about the things that we liked or or disliked uh but we we got to get to you dan uh what was your Kind of previous relationship other than what you already mentioned you know you've, you saw it a couple months ago you know at claire's behest but what what was your kind of perception of the movie before that what was your 
what was your relationship with with Rick? With Rick <laughs> Rick Linklater. Uh oh, me me and Rick, you know, we go way back. Um no, we so actually Linklater was someone that I kind of fell into the trap of un, of thinking of him in the way that people that don't like him. So like, oh, he's like, you know, overly wordy and artsy and you know he just makes movies for people that just want to sit in cafes and be like oh life man it's charlie so... kaufman <laughs> so i kind of put him aside and like i was like oh that's like what link films are i don't need to watch those i'm not all interested in them although i did watch boyhood when i was like 21 and quite liked it so i don't know why i still held on to that belief watch school rock when i was a kid as all cool kids do but then I, it's interesting that this year, just by like by coincidence, I've watched quite a handful of his uh, films this year. Like I've watched uh, Everybody Wants Some I watched earlier, Days and Confused I watched last year, Bernie I watched a few weeks ago, uh, Slacker, which is like, I think it's like his breakout, isn't it? Uh, I watched that not too long ago. So, and I, I've been saving Before Sunrise because like you, Jared, you like understood that this is like, oh, this is some like pillar of... Uh, if you want to watch a romantic film, this is like the romantic film to watch. Uh, it's like very, I don't know, just I don't, I don't want to call it emotionally intense, but it's not a casual watch. It's not something you just kind of throw on, on a Tuesday when you got nothing to do. I had to scream, cry and throw up to get you to watch it. <laughs> and I'm going to scream, cry and throw up until you watch it before sunset now. And it's just an endless <laughs> cycle of screaming, crying and throwing up. Isn't that just life, though? Correct. I work with kids. <laughs> but so... And that was kind of the impetus for um, it, it kind of was like the sign where she's like, OK, you need to watch this, like, go fucking watch it. I'm like, OK, fine. I'll finally get around to it. I'll like it, it's for lack of a better word. It's like a movie you kind of plan your day around. So I think I watched it just like randomly in like the middle of the afternoon. I think I was unemployed at the time. So I had all I had all the time in the world and all the emotional vulnerability in the world to sit there and watch it. And it did a nice doozy on me. Yeah, really glad I watched it. Really, like, I love it as it is. Um, I haven't seen the other two, and I think it's still one of the best films I've seen this year. So, yeah, I'm very big. It's it's kind of been the year of Linklater for me, and I kind of want to check out more of it. So, yes, I will more than likely check out Before Sunrise and Before Midnight, Before the Year is Up. But don't push me, okay? Don't We're watching it. it tonight. Don't force it. We're watching Sunset tonight. <laughs> <laughs> I want to lead with some negativity. Clara, what was it that made you hate this movie when you first watched it? It's not going to be as interesting as you'd think. Um, I think I just took it personally. Like, I thought it was an excellent movie. I'm a big fan of, like, the walking and talking romance. That is, I think, down to the core of what everyone wants in a lifelong partner is that friendship of having someone to talk to about everything and they understand you, they hear you like that's rare. Right. So I think seeing something that personal is really endearing and romantic. So in that sense, it was extremely well-made. I'm also a big theater nerd and it, it watched as if you're watching a play, you know, like it felt like that in real time and it felt very intimate in that way. So I liked it in that way. And then I, personally disliked it <laughs> because it reminded me of me in my early 20s you know i needed looking in the mirror i was <laughs> disgusted with my appearance you know like it was it was just it called me out in all the worst ways and it also just made me mad because 
you know, if this is love and this is what I want and this is what everyone wants and it's so little and it's so short and it just made me mad. It felt performative. Like all the things that you appreciate in a young person, like it just made me personally mad to see it. Cause I was like, yeah. was this really how I was? <laughs> and like, this is not real love. Like I want pride and prejudice where that's real love. And I, I don't even mean that ironically. And like, I know Greta Gerwig just made a big joke of that, but there's a reason why the joke hit is because it's true. So yeah, it just made me angry. I just didn't want that to be love. I, I had so many criticisms. We can so, get into it more later. Actually, that's interesting that you say that because that's almost the reason why I liked it. Um, the looking back at yourself on your 20s, but I do wonder if it's because I'm a little more distant, like I'm watching this at age 30, watching what, what would you clock these two as like 21? 21, 22 tops. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. So I could see if I were 25 and like still very close to how I was at 22 and looking in that mirror, it might be a little grosser, but or like more gross to me. But now that I'm like eight, nine years removed from that, I can kind of look back at it and like, Sort of. It's a, it's cute. No, no, no. Yeah, yeah I can appreciate right. that person nine years ago. It well, now that you say that, I was. It was a few years ago when I watched this movie. Mm -hmm. So that's actually spot on. That's good. Because yeah, I get. I agree. Like from the whole context, you look back at this movie and it's it's cute. It's you're seeing young people being infatuated with each other, exploring a genuine spark and being excited about finding someone that matches their wit. Like that is a jackpot. And they're in a. <laughs> super cool city in europe like please like <laughs> yeah it's it's cute to see but like when i was close to it it was maddening i was like is this not real like mm. what what is gotcha wow yeah and i i had uh you use that word performative where it's like oh it's a little grating watching them do that and like watching them kind of put on this show for each other. And I had a very, very quick turnaround on appreciating that when I was watching the movie. Cause I first, when I very first started it, my initial thought was like, Ooh, Ethan Hawke is overdoing it. And then like 35 seconds later, it's like, Oh wait, never mind. Jesse is overdoing it. And Ethan <laughs> Hawke is perfect. Um, <laughs> uh, in every way, in every way. And uh, he is, he's one of my favorite actors for sure. I think he's one of the, he's one of the greats. Um, I, it's, he's one of those where it's like, why does like, you know, people are like, why doesn't Leonardo DiCaprio have an Academy Award? And it was like every single year. I'm just thinking like, why doesn't Ethan Hawke have an Academy Award? That's like a much better question. I also have a, a theater background and I love that feeling in this movie and like specifically like it's something we've talked about on, on the podcast a few times and we'll talk about it more, but there's certain types of movies where they are the director's movie and the actors are like putty in their hands. They're, they remove their own self from it because they want to submit to the director's vision, which is fine. Wes Anderson does that. We talk about that ad nauseum on the asteroid city episode. This is the exact opposite where it's the collaboration of theater where Richard Linklater early on is like, I can't write this script. I need a woman to write the script. Like, and then, you know, Ethan and Julie come in and they're basically discovering every moment with each other. And they're spending all this time together in Vienna working and collaborating. And then you watch the, the end result versus what's on the page. And they hardly ever say the line verbatim as it's written. They are oh. discovering it every single time. It feels alive. It feels like a live performance. And it it's just it just fucking touches me. I love it. I love this movie. 
Well, Clarice, you look, you've you've made two boys get all warm and sappy. I'm amazing. <laughs> There's no denying that. A, I'm perfect. It's a, it's a magic power. It's it's difficult to pull off. Um, I'm trying to think of yeah, favorite like yeah, we can get into my only small like thing that made me screw my eyes a little bit throughout this and like it's hard to a movie that is so dialogue heavy like every line's not going to be a banger and every like thread that they're going through isn't going to be just perfect and exquisite there's going to be and especially with something where there are such high highs like when you see things that don't quite reach that it almost looks worse in contrast where i'm sure this gripe is like very small or like much if this is the biggest problem that it has that's really uh uh it's accidentally like a compliment to the film. But I think I was talking to you guys about where there's this sort of thread that goes through in the, uh, the gender politics of it. If I even want to say it's that intense as calling it gender politics, where it's like Julie's character is somehow like inscrutable and ethereal and cannot be understood because women are just these otherworldly creatures that uh, men cannot possibly ever even try to fathom and it's like this weird essentializing version of like what gender dynamics are where it kind of it kind of lets men get off the hook for not trying to understand their partner because mm. they're like well women you know they're just oh, no but that's I, the point is they're performing their stereotypes for each other this is the first time they're meeting they're the best versions of themselves they're going to be hyper feminine they're going to be hyper masculine mm. they're going to be the smartest wittiest coolest sexiest versions of themselves and i agree with jared that that's the turnaround is like that's your early 20s meeting the fucking love of your life is you're going to be amazing for the first 24 hours <laughs> and so that's where i give it slack because i agree that was one of my biggest criticisms too it's it's cheesy i guess my uh my 21 year old version with too much hubris was not nearly as cool. Well, no, I I thought that <laughs> I was the woman understander in the room, and I thought that oh. I, I I got femininity. You know, I have sisters. Oh, so, you know, interesting. I know that does help. How, well, yeah, I have four sisters, yeah, yeah. so like, that definitely flag. helped. Green flag um, for sure. But so, like, maybe having four sisters, like that that like whole idea that women are these inscrutable creatures, has always kind of just rang false to me. And <laughs> You don't fall for it. Yeah, I don't fall for that shit. You guys are understandable. You ain't so clever. Yeah, no, I, 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 I would not. love to hear you back up your thoughts here, Dan, because I, I'm wondering what is in the movie that at all, well, they like purpose, purposely, well, purposely, you know, putting. Uh, gosh, why am I forgetting her name, Celine? Like, are, Celine. is there anything in this movie that Julie Delpy's doing that is written in the script that is? putting Celine forth as this un inscrutable, unknowable, ethereal creature? Or is well, that they, just they your, you? Correctly in some of their conversations where they're just kind of talking about the nature of love and, man, there's so many conversations I can't, like, pull it out of my head. Um, but basically, when they're talking about, like, oh, women just want to destroy men to a, to a level or um, women uh, essentially, like, they, they seem... Ethan Hawke and Julie and uh, so, sorry, I'm mixing actors and characters names. I'm going to be sticking to character names from here on out. Uh, Jesse and Celine seem to agree that women operate on like an entirely different like parameter of need when it comes to a uh, what they're looking for in a relationship than men. So in like the very worst version of this is like the really shitty rom coms where it's like men just want to fuck. And women just want uh, to get hugged and have someone to do the dishes. Let's see how they play this out. 
where this is a much more sophisticated, like much lighter version of this like sort of like inherent incompatibility between men and women or this like gap that cannot be traversed because of some fundamental nature of their gender. And that comes up over and over as like a running theme. And I don't know, personally, like I just, and, and Claire is right that like, this is performative to a level. So they're kind of playing it up to, to it adds to their flirtation, but it just kind of always grates me a little bit where it's like, it's just hard to watch. That's, it's hard <laughs> to watch. Um, or I always remember this quote from, I think it's George R. R. Martin, where someone's interviewing him. It's like, how do you write such well-rounded uh, female characters? He's like, well, the first thing I do is I imagine women are people. And then I go from there. Really? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, we know early on that Jesse has a brother and he never mentions a sister. I kind of get the feeling that Celine is an only child, or at the very least, I don't recall her ever mentioning siblings. Yeah. I think it's entirely reasonable that Jesse would see her that way. As an audience, I don't really see that at all. They may discuss it. The two of them might even see each other that way. She might even see herself that way and is actively playing it up. I didn't see that as a problem because I'm not 20. I can see past it immediately. Yes, exactly, yeah. exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I guess, yeah, that's just like the, as we're saying, like we're seeing such a, it's the strength of the film that we're seeing such a strong mirror of how you how you would have liked to see yourself as yes. a 20-year-old. You want to see yourself as handsome, charming Ethan Hawke. Yes. Or, or sorry, I've got to stick to the character names. Handsome. Handsome, handsome, charming. <laughs> Tongue back. <laughs> handsome, charming Jesse, or, you know, incredibly alluring, charming, uh, I was going to say Julie again, Celine. But the reality, and you see that that's like the cracks in their armor a little bit that you're seeing in their like the quote unquote masks that they're putting on the performance that they're doing. Oh, but that's why it's such a good movie is the cracks in the masks. Oh, yeah. Like that's, that's why. I ended up liking this so much, even it being my least favorite of the three is because like the writers did a really good job and the directors and the actors, they did a really good job at showing the cracks and making these characters really relatable, multifaceted, realistic humans. Yeah. Ew, real people on screen. Real people. But before we get in the mask, can, can I, can I talk about Vienna for a little bit? Oh my can God. I, you love the sausages, don't you? Shit, uh, okay, well, first off, sip. first off, you don't. Uh, I, I've always found those things really disgusting. <sighs> Get off your recall, high horse, right? I don't recall a time I enjoyed Vienna sausages. I'm going to throw a rope up so you can climb down from your ivory tower and enjoy some of the people's sausages. <laughs> oh, <laughs> my God. Holy shit, dude. Um, you, just, you just cannot stop just coming up with poetry. <laughs> all the time even when you lisp, lisped earlier it was i'm sure it sounded wonderful to you my my brows are all the way up at the ceiling right now they're they're beyond high but um yeah uh so i that was one thing i noticed and i really appreciate on the second watch so the first watch um i'm you know just taken away by the the chemistry of the two of them and i'm not really paying attention to anything past the chemistry because it's just like jumping out and grabbing you by the fucking throat but on the second watch, I was kind of sitting a little more back, kind of trying to pick up some theme, trying to pick up, uh, you know, just general things to to try and chat about. And one of the things that always uh, that was sticking out to me for most of the film is how much Vienna is shown as to avoid the cliche, like the city is one of the characters too. But you didn't avoid the cliche at all. No, no, I'm 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 gonna roll right into it. Um, oh my god! But Vienna is interestingly like a really great pick especially night like vienna at the time that was being uh filmed 
because a very, 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 very fast 20th century Austria uh, history lesson. Basically, super conservative, started out like monarchists, ran Europe for a long time. It was not shocking at all that they joined the fascists uh, because they're just that that was the legacy that they have. So they've gone from like 200 years of uh, being a very stable, conservative, reactionary empire. And then they World War I happens, it falls. World War II happens, they become Nazis. Uh, after World War II, they get occupied by the Allies and they get occupied by uh, the Soviet Union. So now they're dealing with both capitalism and communism within a very short period of time. And then the Berlin Wall falls at about 1990. And they all of a sudden, they're like, well, now what the fuck do we do? So Vienna is in this sort of liminal space where they don't know their identity at this point and they don't know how they're going to move forward in 1995. Kind of like some characters in a movie. 40 seconds. Oh my god. Wow. 39.8 second history lesson. That was so bad. Listen, guys. Uh, I'm so glad that it's us teaming up on that one. I know. So, Jared. If you guys were actually listening instead of teasing me. I couldn't hear one single thing. I'm so oh sorry. Like god. Jared and I were just in on the Okay, table. well, let me do it again then. I'll have to go through it all over again. <sighs> we and... got the gist. We got the gist. No, no, no. We, no, we got it. No, I mean... Sure, like Europe is in transition while this I mean, is the perfect place for them to to be, right. you know, connecting and, and everything. And like she she even talks about like how she feels sort of helpless or small because, you know, the, the fighting is going on in the Balkans. You know, she says like what 300 kilometers away or something that she says. And, you know, they're not part of that. They're in this like encased in this sort of like uh, Goldilocks position city in in time in and in europe right but like now how does that then pertain to these characters other than they're sort of existing outside of their own lives in this little well, space vienna in particularly like they were kind of like uh you know how like germany got split into two but berlin got split into like four um the same thing happened to vienna and austria it's just it's not really uh in the front of history uh books so in Vienna, through the like all the wars and all the conflicts that came through the Cold War, World War II, they were kind of protected against all of it. So Vienna is kind of this weird like fairyland city where for some reason consequences just didn't hit it like the rest of uh, continental Europe at the time. So it is, and it kind of matches the theme of like this is very dreamlike. It's almost like a like a fantasy going on where all of a sudden all the rules of like the, their previous lives and all the relationships and all the baggage it's just they just get to put it aside for a little bit and they get to live this one day in this sort of like alternate universe almost and vienna in a way has sort or at least up until 95 had been sort of existing in this like parallel interestingly consequence-free universe and so i think it's it's fitting that they put the characters in there it's I like can't... it's like europe's rumspringa yeah. Well, it reminds me of like in Bruges, like when they always talk about Bruges, where it's like, oh, it's like a fairy tale land. Like that, that's a good place to go. Uh, have your buddy assassinate you would be Vienna. Mm. I wonder if Link later would pick pick up what you're putting down right now, Dan. Yeah, I don't know if that was on his mind or not. Maybe he just thought maybe he went to Vienna and had sex with a cool French. There's lady. no doubt about it. <laughs> this people write art from what they know. And that's all I'm going to say. Like, they can make up something, but it's even in the most outlandish of imaginative plots, 
it is still their personal interpretation of the universe and it reveals a lot. Okay. You think, mm. you think that? And guy? then, yes. And I think in movie two, you'll be even more convinced for sure. Yeah. I, if it probably wasn't like a, such a romantic place, it was probably, you know, some place in the U S he hadn't been before. And, you know, at this point in his career, he had, you know, had a couple of, you know, movies that landed really well and he'd go wherever he wants to film this movie and why not Vienna? I can just picture Jesse ugly crying to Billy Joel's Vienna on his way home. Just like <laughs> sobbing. <laughs> just oh. so sad. Go go off to make his show about nothing. This, <laughs> this like this like college age or like just like recent grad age dude in 1995. His brilliant idea is a show about nothing. He got Seinfeld. That's sign. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> right. Yep. I'm. I'm glad. I'm glad that you understand me. <laughs> I feel like we're all friends right now. Like I feel very connected to you guys. That's really nice. Yeah. Sure. It uh-huh. takes the Seinfeld quote. <laughs> uh, okay. Well, getting out of uh, the whole Vienna of it all. Thank you for indulging me on that point. Mm. Um, so I wanted to bring up two where a lot of times in I would say. Uh, a weaker version of this film would be about just one of them. Like just about Ethan Hawke's coming of age, just about fuck. I need to keep about Jesse's coming of age or about Celine's coming of age. Like it would clearly be about one of the two. And I'd be interested if you guys feel like there is a, one of the characters that take the front seat in this. Um, But I think the strength of this film is that it's sort of a dual coming of age. Like they both, sort of find a deeper sense of their identity in one another and then like you know come together and then pull apart and i think that's sort of a lot of the magic of this film is the two of them playing off each other for this like so uh film of self-discovery so uh claire what do you think who is there one of the characters that kind of takes the front seat are they level or um yeah just go on um for their self-discovery for like, yeah, for like the classic coming of age story and especially yeah. how it relates to romance stories. Yeah, I mean, I think they got to know each other or like themselves pretty well. But realistically, I think this is more about them just like really discovering what they want in a lifelong partner and what like they what excites them. I think when I see this movie and I see before sunrise specifically is like people being really excited to find someone that matches their wit, someone that can keep up with their conversation, keep up with their intellect, you know, make themselves laugh. And they're wildly attracted to each other. They were like, check, 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 check. And, you know, nothing's going to compare to that. I think Mm -hmm. that they just like found what they were looking for. So I think in that sense, yeah, they got to know themselves in that way, but I don't really see it as one person taking the lead or not. It was like a, so you, felt, you felt like he succeeded and it seems like the script wants to do that where it succeeded in making it pretty even like, i mean that's that's the whole allure of it is yeah. that it's even that's why it's so romantic it's not one person pining over the other and it hurts it's like they are obsessed with each other and that's mm. what we all want right yeah yeah I, I i also don't think that this is heavily skewed towards one more than the other, as far as their growth and how much they're maturing or coming of age during the movie. If anything, it, yeah, it's, it's perfectly symmetrical, just like both of their faces. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I always, I always think back like 
what movie was it? It was the Dark Knight where the Joker is like, this is what happens when an unstoppable force oh. is a movable object. <laughs> and it's like, and it's like such a cliche. And it's like, that's just like what like scene writing is, is like two people in opposition. And that's, you know, that's classic, right? Classic, like breaking down a scene as an actor, like, which one am I? This movie, it's two unstoppable forces, right? Mm. It's like there's there, one of them isn't just playing off of the other. They're they're constantly kind of growing together or at least coming into their own together. I view them as like tectonic plates that are coming together. They squeeze together and then they both go up like this together. This is a visual medium of a podcast. And now, <laughs> yeah, now they're now we'll see act, the actual growth that happens off screen and we'll watch the next movie and we'll, I'm sure we're going to get to see plenty of the other one uh kind of coloring you know each other's personalities as they age and i'm like really excited to see it if uh speaking of the visual medium of podcasting clara is burying her uh face in her hands she really wants to talk about the other movies right now (laughs) i am literally home alone right now (laughs) (laughs) um okay well maybe this will reveal uh more about me than about the movie but i definitely uh was watching this behind ethan Hawke's eyes oh my god um because well, and uh, to to reveal a bit about my my biography that to not dox myself at the same time though um, that like I lived a, a similar life. I've been in situations like this very similarly where I was like in a city. I've never I don't know a soul. I'm only there temporarily. I'm not in a country that I belong to, and I meet someone while I'm there. So like the, just the basic uh, bones of that story. Like I have been exactly in Ethan Hawke's shoes, and knowing you know the the kind of tragedy of the brief encounter is that like, you know, it's going to end, you know, the hard date that like, you'll never see this person again, but you're both kind of suspending belief for a little while. So I guess for me, it felt like Ethan Hawke was more the center and also just Ethan Hawke is incredibly magnetic. So that also doesn't help uh, for, or that also helps me get more in his corner. Um, But at least for me, it felt like, if if the script was meant to be 50-50, I think it was like 60 Ethan Hawke, 40 uh, Julie Delpy. Oh, you are such a boy. I am a boy. You are such a boy. I'm a boy. No, you're just you're relating to his side of things the way that like I related to her. Like the same way where you're like, oh, women are so ethereal. And like that's like this big part of the movie. And I'm over here like, what? She was insecure. She was jealous. <laughs> she was manipulative. And she was outright with it. And there were multiple occasions where, like, those cracks showed through her mask of this this perfect Madonna virgin, okay? Like, mm, plus yeah. the cool girl. Ooh, actually. Like, that's, that's the key to a sexy individual is a little <laughs> bit of perfect 50s housewife, a little bit of Marilyn Monroe, okay? Being, a little bit of Jackie, a little bit of Marilyn. You so got to have both. To be an impossible man. human being. Be impossible. And she... She almost nailed it, but then the direction and the writing was too good, and she was too good saying that that's not realistic. But in general, they were equal, dude. They were both. Oh, I'm, that's why I'm saying this is more my, re- like, more me. I'm more talking about myself than this movie at this point. I fully uh, endorse that it probably is much more close to the 50-50 balance. I'm just saying I saw it. I, I related too close to Ethan Hawke because also I can grow a cute goatee and have floppy hair in front of my face as well. You are so good at getting floppy hair. <laughs> I've seen the flop yeah. and it is superb. It flops well. It's a good flop. 
Um, <laughs> so <laughs> we would uh, firmly categorize this in what's a, a well-trodden, uh, at least cinematic story, and even further back, and just storytelling in general. And it's within the romance genre, the brief encounter, where you know from the get-go they both understand that there is a an end to their meeting, whatever this is going to be, and it's sunrise. Like Ethan Hawke has to get out of here. I need to use their correct characters. You're Jesse good. has to get out of here, and Celine also has to keep moving on. They're they're in transition right now, and they're on trains, which I still say are the most romantic form of public transportation, and it's not even close. I would this agree. couldn't have happened on a plane. Um, Absolutely not. <laughs> but yeah. would have been a nightmare to shoot. <laughs> yeah, for real. Um, so, Jared, I'll let you kick this off. Is like the the, what do you think of like the brief encounter romance? Like what like does it does this work well as one? What happens when it doesn't work? Like how does this stack up? Like what's your uh, what are your thoughts on the brief encounter? Yeah, well, it's a little bit of a too well worn trope, and I'm I am I'm glad that I went into this movie knowing that it, it's this is not going to be just a brief encounter for these two. I'm mm. very glad that I had that context. You know, at the end. You know, when they're the, the two of them, neither one of them wants to be the the one that, you know, loses the power dynamic of saying like, no, 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 no. I don't want this to be just a brief encounter. And when it all happens yeah. at once, at yes. end, oh, it's, it's gorgeous. Oh, oh, it's so <laughs> gorgeous. I'm getting I'm getting there. It is. There's the chills. Visual yeah, medium of the podcast. There, there's the pilot erect. Uh, <laughs> I'm too messant. At least my my chicken skin is. And uh, no, like when they find when that cut when that veneer like like it drops for both of them at the same time, and she's like, "Oh, thank God, I've been wanting to say that for for like hours," and uh, you know we're just rooting for them. We get that beautiful cliffhanger. Like, is it going to happen? They we feel it right along with them. That's so much cooler than the two of them just playing it cool and being like, "Yeah, I guess we're going back to our lives, but we'll always have Vienna." Like that, that would <laughs> yes. be so dumb. Something. Yeah, it, it's awesome, and you know there's. One of the things that I, I, I've been rolling my eyes a little bit about this movie, and I don't know if it's just this perfect kismet that this movie just created, but Linklater and, and Hawk and Delpy, they talk about how like they had no idea they were going to make another, another movie, let alone two movies. They thought they were going to be done with it. And it, it just seems like that's bullshit. Like the, the, <laughs> it seems like the movie's operating on that Richard Linklater level where he has the ambitious long-term project in mind because all throughout the movie, they're talking about like, oh, you know, he says like, you know, the best pickup line in the world, what, what Clara called it, I think, uh, was like, uh, you know, think about what's going to happen in 10, 20 years. Um, you know, and like, it's like, what? That One of the first lines in this movie is him being like, picture yourself in 10 years, 20 years, and then we get to do just that. I like almost calling bullshit that like they weren't planning something from the beginning and this never was meant to be a brief encounter romance. But I could be wrong, and it's just like pure awesome luck that the, it was there in the writing, and they're so constantly talking about aging and couples aging together, and you know the the just they're they're constantly talking about the flow of time. They're constantly talking about how relationships may evolve. It, I I feel like this movie in its bones isn't a brief encounter romance, mm. and you know I'll never know if that's just because. I know for a fact going into it that it's not, and this is actually going to span decades, but you know, that I guess I'll never know, but it doesn't feel that way to me. 
I think um, that those tropes are so well-worn, even at that point, you know, they've been well-worn for hundreds of years, probably. And it didn't seem like that was ever their intention to me. But, you know, if it was, they still made a hell of a brief encounter romance, if we we're only thinking about this movie. Yeah, see, I, I, I lean more on the, the side of serendipity, where they, I don't, maybe he just, like, he could have thought, like, oh, it would be nice to follow these characters further along. But, like, I think this was intended, at least originally, to be uh, a closed loop of the story. Because, like, the the natural sequel would have been six months later, when they do meet each other again. They don't do that. Like, that's that's what the script is pointing at for a sequel, but they don't do that. Um, and I think it's i think the the discussion of like far in the future only uh heightens what the um the brief encounter does because they're 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 placing their very very finite amount of time together in the grand scheme of their entire lives and they're they're constantly talking about that they're talking about their lives leading up to this point they're talking about what their lives are going to look like 10 20 30 years down the line and yeah you do get to see it obviously like we don't know that at the time in 95, but you do get to see what they look like 10, 20, 30 years down the line. But I think them bringing in this like bigger scope of time only highlights just how brief the time they have together. So I don't, I think while it does serve to set up a nice sequel, 10, what is it like 15 years later or something like that? Nine years. Nine years. Clara later. has already educated you on this, dude. Pay attention <laughs> when women speak. Fucking. <laughs> Jesus Christ, man! Listen, I mean, people are gonna listen to this. People that you don't married with kids. People, people <laughs> that you don't know are gonna listen to this, Dan. I'm just Ken. <laughs> listen, I didn't learn numbers in school, okay? But I think what the, the bringing the greater scope of time only uh, intensifies the short amount of time that they have. So I think it works within the script as a self-contained story thematically. And you guys are Claire. mean. No, Claire, I've Claire, I've seen you reacting so big to like so many things, like just like uh, you know, look at disgust on your face when Dan's talking, that sort of thing. <laughs> That's uh, not no, 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 no. What what I, I know that you have a strong opinion on this, and like you, you know, you you send it over in text at one point about how like the you know the the brief encounter romance is kind of bullshit and and you know, like not your favorite is what I gathered, but I'd love to hear your take on this. I think it just hurts, you know, it just is that reminder that it is brief back to the theme of the night. I'm greedy. I want more. And I don't know, but you guys like it. I'm jealous that you guys are so accepting of death and time and all these things that we're talking about. Cause that's what brief encounter really comes down to is just how much time do you get with the person that you love or like the feeling of love you know, it, it comes and goes just like every other emotion. Nothing's really constant, but you're looking for something at least steady. But the thing is with the brief encounter is it's dissatisfying. It leaves a, a little bit of a bad taste. Like it's nearly perfect, but not quite. It's like window shopping, you know? <laughs> you know, there's a reason why Jane Austen is considered one of the most like spot on women centered viewpoint of what romance is, why Pride and Prejudice is that joke in Barbie it's because the women end up comfortable and safe and their family is comfortable and safe and they have this best friend of a partner who's obsessed with them and they never have to worry about anything. Like, that's the dream. So, like, brief encounters are romantic, but, like, is it the dream? I don't know. Well, and 
And yeah, the, to your point, like the, even the two characters realize like this isn't sustainable. Like they almost admit to each other, like if we had both, if we're both from Vienna and we had just met, like this shit wouldn't be this cool. Uh, I don't know, maybe not a week later, maybe not a month later, but a year or two later, eventually this dynamic that we have is going to cool off. Well, that's what's terrifying. (laughs) And that's, you know, what's kind of cool about this too in general is like they're acting on the fact of there's not much time. We're feeling this insane thing. Let's act upon it right Mm -hmm. now. Like there's a lot of action, which is cool. Mm -hmm. Yeah, let's just speed run this this would-be courtship, Mm -hmm. which, I mean, it does. It's what created that white hot fire to begin with is them knowing that this is most likely finite, right? Like this probably wouldn't have played out at all the same if, uh, you know, they weren't just, you know, strangers passing in the night. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, I, but I think the question that you were bringing up, Dan was like, why are we generally like, why are, why are human beings generally drawn to these dramatizations of a brief encounter romance? And I'd, I'd love to hear uh, Dan, what, why you think that is. Yeah, because I I only actually only realized this like, I don't know, a year or so ago that most of the movies are in the romance genre that I like most, or at least like get to me the most, are brief encounter romances. Avoidant. Uh, <laughs> hey, this is coming from someone who's been dating someone steadily for the last few years or a few couple of years. Um, but I think it has something to do with the not even necessarily on the surface of like the relationship and the passion and the the high heat of it all, but it's more this idea of, you know, you'll, you get this very, very finite amount of time on this planet. And it's this ethos of I'm, I'm going to just go after this, you know, consequences be not be damned, but like, I know that I know this shit's going to hurt. I know engaging in this can only end in pain but I'm still going to go after this with two feet in regardless. And like, there's something very uh, beautiful about that, about human interaction that whether, you know, it's love or even like a career or a passion or anything like that, um, seeing people do that and get hurt by it, I think is just an incredibly uh, human experience. Oh, we have someone gagging. No, I'll get ridiculed. I'll get killed online. You have to cut that sound. <laughs> Don't worry. There's only no. four people are going to listen to this. I hate I you. Think, I hate I think you. I, can I hate you. You're everything that's wrong with the world. Cut that too. I'm so mean. Okay. Please. <laughs> yeah, no, Jared is. I am, I'm the heel of the podcast. That's not true. Uh, I, I mean, I, I get it too, though. Like, I, I definitely relate to that experience, that just all-encompassing moment where it's like you and this other person are like just s- speed running, getting to know each other. You're you're basically putting all your best material out there. You're putting on this show. Like, I get it. I've done that so many times. We talked about earlier on this podcast how you and I did that, Dan. <laughs> um like no and i've done that before like so i i get that feeling so much and like it, it oftentimes will end up with just like a sleepless night right you know for various reasons and um it's like i don't know i think i think a lot of people have that point of reference you know, right that these sorts of things uh plays movies novels really encapsulate but i also think that's just there's, there's such an allure of like the no strings thing where like you don't have to worry about what they're going to think of you 
in three weeks. You can put out that performance all the way. You can go as big with it as you want. You can razzle dazzle them, you know, future be damned. And uh, yeah, it's isn't uh, there, isn't no, there freedom nailed, in that? Like, no, he nailed, I mean, there's, there is freedom. You're right. Like you can kind of show your worst and best bits, try it out. But <laughs> what he's saying and like what I think you understand me, Jared is like, it's not as real as it could be. Like it's right. not the dream. You want to not have to be performative or like give your best yeah. or yeah, yeah, do yeah. all this, you know? So yeah, uh, I guess true. this uh, this kind of dovetails nicely into the idea that you brought up earlier about like masks, about performances, about that. Both of them are giving their best material. And I actually, and I think I'm going to differ from you two on this one where um, I kind of don't, at least the metaphor of the mask doesn't quite work for me because I think the way that you want to portray yourself at your best or like what you, the way you choose to show, not show off, but to make your first impression or the way that uh, Jesse and Celine decide to uh, express themselves to one another, that says a lot about them, the real people that they are. So I don't think those are that while they're masks in the sense that they are being performative, they're not masks in, it says a lot about both of them that they choose to behave this way. Um, like in, in on first impressions with me, with people, like I choose uh, similar stories over and over. And actually Jesse says the same thing where he's like, oh, uh, you know, if we were together for a long time, you get so tired of my pseudo intellectual bullshit stories I bring out every time at a party. And like, I have, you know, and everyone has it. They have like a Rolodex of like five to 10 stories that they love yeah. to bring out when they talk about themselves at first. And like, yeah. you know, people have hundreds of stories that they could bring up oh, yeah. in casual conversation with new people, but you choose five to 10 of them. And that says a lot about you. And yeah. I think both of them are bringing out what they perceive as their greatest hits. And I think that reveals a lot about who they genuinely are. So I actually don't really see it as masks. I see it as them um, expressing—it's—it's—it's it's, it's hyper realism. Yeah, uh, it's yeah. them expressing level. who they—it's them yeah. expressing who they want to be. But I think they both understand they don't live up to their own hype. But there's still <laughs> a lot to say about their own character to say that's the ideal that they want to strive for is being yeah. that person in this movie. You're saying you're Ooh. still learning something good about them or something helpful about them something yeah something insightful oh. about yeah who they are, who they are. it yeah. still gives you a lot of information oh mm -hmm. uh, clara dan though when when her like so you, he what you said jesse says you know years from now you know you're still hearing the same stories like what are you gonna think about that and she like oh so that. she rebuffs that and she's like oh there's something beautiful about being with someone for so long that you know exactly what story they're going to tell in every situation. I just wish that the two of you, when she said that line, you could have seen the way that my wife and I looked at each other. Aww. It was, it was, it was absolutely just gorgeous. Yeah. Wow. Jared. <laughs> that's so romantic. No, cause that's Sorry. my favorite part. And that's why sunrise is my least favorite of the three. Is like it's just not the good bits, you know. It's the beginning, yeah. and there's something beautiful and valuable about that. And like you can treasure a beginning, and it's important, but it's not the best part of what everyone's after, which is the yeah. long-lasting someone wiping your ass in the nursing home. Love. Can't oh, wait for my wife to wipe my ass. Gotta yeah. tell you, me and my girlfriend have made a rule that if one of us becomes incontinent, just you know, do not resuscitate. 
send us into the abyss is done. I'll take care of your vegetable body. <laughs> Just like saute <laughs> it and eat it for lunch. Like yeah. I don't yum, yum, yum. <laughs> You're going to be so stringy at that point now. Can we just chow and down after today? After and fire, I'll be like a little like cooked and like jerky-fied at that point. Ooh, probably. You're going to be nice and smoky. Your asshole will finally <laughs> taste good again. <laughs> again? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, but getting back on track a little bit, um, uh, I've already, I guess I've already sold the farm a little bit on my opinion on the masks, but I can still, I still like the idea of the masks. Um, what would you say... What do you think about the masks that the two characters wear, or what do you think they are, and what do you think that says about them? Okay, I'll start with Jesse if that's okay. Mm-hmm. Um, he, I don't think he's as much of a blowhard as he presents himself to be. He's not certainly not as much of a cynic. Like he wants to play this masculine role that's that has to be hyper logical about everything, and I think part of him wants to give in to romance and he's not gonna just start from that point he wants someone to get the get him there and by golly celine does it <laughs> yeah I, I think that also um points to what i was saying is like it might be 60 40 ethan hawk because like yeah well i cannot describe how much that was me well, when i was 20 right. 21 well ho- hold on claire like so what is what is celine's version of what i just said She's not as cool as she wants to be. Like, I think she knows that she is the gorgeous, foreign, French, blonde angel, as he describes her, which you were saying that his best pickup line was the one on the train. Personally, his best pickup line was him saying that he was rapturous with meeting her. Are you kidding? If a man (laughs) said he was rapturous after meeting me, oh, we're married. I'm pregnant. (laughs) Like there's, oh my goodness! He calls her a Botticelli angel. Oh my <laughs> I, god! Referring back to the man who showed me this movie, he called me a dog with flies in his song about me. But you know, I, I am jealous, and I'm. I need to set my standards up way higher. <laughs> Regardless, Celine, like I said earlier, like she has insecurities. She's jealous. She brings up, you know, like we're looking at that girl. And like these are all just like little clues, and you know she's she's got her faults too. She even openly admits being like, "I look for the people I date. I look for their flaws, and I think about ways to use them mm-hmm. against them later." And that's you know relatable, and that comes from an insecurity of like they're going to leave me, so I need to scheme and lie and cheat in order to get them to stay. Like she's revealing herself, and that's what makes her more human. And I liked her, and that's why I like this. I like this movie is because she seems relatable. Like, she has a lot of great qualities. She is sexy. She is smart. She is cool. She is foreign. She's got a cool accent. She's got <laughs> nice hair and perky tits. <laughs> but she is cool. She's relatable. That's, that's Celine's mask. Clara, I have a question. Why do you think it is that she dated that guy that she described as like a ugly loser uh she 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 says like a couple things a few more things about him where like you know i, I guess i just wanted to do him a favor uh what, what's your take on that is that is that something that like you know like women talk about with each other like is that like do you, do you, do you find that that's like a common 
you know, desire to like, you know, take this person who doesn't deserve you and just like become obsessive in that way. Like that she describes, like, what do you think is going on with her when she talks about that? And like, she talks about her, her last relationship. Um, I don't know. I, it's tough because I think girls, there's an old saying that like, you should date someone who likes, likes you more than you like them. And that's not a positive way of thinking. It's not like good advice, but it is old advice that women hear. And I think it is, you know, back to her insecurity, a safe place to be, you know, if that person is obsessed with her, but not as good as her, then it's safe, right? If she meets someone who is her level, there's more to lose. So it hurts more if it doesn't work out. She confesses her love and it's not returned. Like that's embarrassing. That's horrible. Mm. So it's safer to be with the loser who's ugly and not good enough for you. Right. You know? And then he breaks up with her and it sends her into a tailspin. Doubly hurts. Well, yeah. yeah. That, are you kidding me? <laughs> I didn't want you to begin with. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And that's interesting because I've had conversations with other with uh, men about this, too. We're the same idea. Uh, actually, I've you know just talked. Uh, I speak with men as well on occasion wow. uh, and the same ethos happens where you hear about that where it's like oh who's the reacher and who's the settler like who who cares more about it like you want to be the one who cares less you're in the position of power and like that was something that even at a younger age like it always felt weird to me because i never understood like what's power doing in a relationship that should be about love maybe i don't know why that was maybe i'm just I'm very mature for my age. I don't know. Oh, my God. Um, <laughs> no, that can't be it. No, no. So that's not it. So it has to be something else. Um, and we can figure that out maybe later. But just the idea that um, a relationship is about a power struggle is something that I think um, Celine very much uh, understands or is very uh, aware of. And and there's, like, a reality behind it, especially if you're, you're a woman dating, which um, – you know, because I know about how women date. You can <laughs> tell me if I'm wrong. <laughs> but that, like, that. Oh, she power... can. <laughs> that's that's so nice of you. She, yeah, I'll, I'll give her permission. Um, but like that power dynamic is less consequential for men because they already have an upper, like, an upper hand just from patriarchy, where women have to be more uh, cognizant of that in relationships. Interesting. I. I love that the two of them don't really have that. Like, yeah, they're different people. They're exactly on the same level. Like when they speak, the other one just understands. They're both very desirable in a lot of ways. Uh, and they just, all they see in each other is that thing that they desire. And that's it. It's just pure and it's simple and it's perfect in that one night. And none of that power struggle is going on to, yeah. to my perception. I agree. That's why it's so romantic. But because they can afford to throw that out the window. Yes, exactly. They're yeah. not afraid of it. And I think that's why both of them are putting all their chips on the table, in a sense, is like they have nothing to lose. Like they can enjoy and indulge in this like really special connection that they stumbled upon. Yeah, because if they fuck it up, it's like well, they'll never see each other again. Yeah, it's fine. whatever. Yeah, yeah. But if <laughs> if it works, then this is the best decision and day of my life. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, so a, a part that speaking of Jesse's mask that I think was interesting, at least in uh, revealing of his character, actually revealing of both their characters, was uh, two scenes. The first one being when the palm reader shows up, and uh, as you're saying, like Jesse is this very 
I almost want to say faux cynical actually uh, would be fair to put on. Uh, and she, she shows up, she, she does the palm reading, she gets her money out of them and she moves on. And Jesse's immediate response is like, what a fucking scam artist. Like she got you for a mark. And it's kind of funny. And I think I texted you guys this as I was rewatching it, where it's like, Jesse's not wrong. Like, and I was listening to it again, having watched it. And she definitely like sees a someone with a foreign accent who cannot speak the language and pretty much gives this like very vague uh, description of like, oh, you're a traveler. You're a seeker. You you're in transition. Well, well, no shit. You just met a French person in Vienna. Of course, she's in transition like you. Uh, it's an easy mark there. And, and I agree with Jesse, at least at, at that level. Um, and I'm also just not one for like astrology and, and palm reading and things like that. But um, what Jesse completely missed the point on there is that like it doesn't matter if that was true or not. It doesn't matter if that actually was like scientifically empirically true. It's the the creation of belief and the the, the creation, playfulness. Yeah, the playfulness of like building that meaning out Let's of it. Let's play together. That's and, what it was happening. And he yeah. just refused to do that. He's like, I don't want to freaking play. <laughs> he just doesn't like fun. No, exactly. Yeah. That was what it was giving, and she was annoyed. She got the ick. Uh, yeah, yeah, a little bit. And she called him out for it, and that was really satisfying. She's like, was, I didn't oh. like how annoying you were being, like, stopping judgy. Oh. I agree. And, then, oh, and then right in yeah. that conversation is when the next, I would say, a, a contrast to this, like, sort of, you could call it, like, astrology. You could call it sort of a, a, a an alternative metaphysical way of understanding things. And now you have the the derelict poet that was sitting on the the, the riverfront, and he, he asks him for a word, and they say milkshake, and he just, like, bangs out a poem right there for them. And and then Ethan Hawke, like, Jesse, uh, quickly starts to say, like, you know, he probably just plugged that into a formula, right? And he's like, what? And he's like, you know what? Fuck it. Never mind. Which I thought was like a really nice small piece of character growth, but I also yeah. think it does work. Her feedback, yeah, it took her. It took her feedback. No, but it still revealed his character flaw, or like at least his like negative aspects that he was trying to hide. And, mm-hmm. and I think yep, he was more willing to get on board with like a poetic understanding of building meaning than like a than like a metaphysical understanding of building meaning where I think even if you had, if you have flipped those in reverse, he probably still would be more on board with the poet than the palm reader. Um, right. I, uh, to get your guys thoughts on that. Like how, how do those well, two characters come in yeah. and like, they're kind of ways of building meaning and yeah. how the, the couple kind of responds to that. Well, okay. I think this is a one, one point where I, this is something that we were sort of arguing about earlier, but I think I am agreeing with you, Dan, from earlier on this point is this does just seem to be a fairly black and white surface level demonstration of like, this is how men think. This is how women think. Like he's going to be this like cynical, logical, not wanting to participate in the magic, not wanting to participate in the romance. Like, you know, like I see the cracks and, 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 you know, this is Celine's part of saying like, I, yeah, I'm going to be this more in tune with my, in tune with my nature, like in tune, like in tune with my spiritual self, like more like traditionally quote unquote, like womanly thing. And maybe the movie's guilty of it here, but part of me thinks that the reason why he 
other than the fact that Celine already called him out on his bullshit and now he has an opportunity to not do it again, I think that there's part of it maybe that when the poet does his little grift that maybe he appreciates the the mechanics of it. Like he appreciates the craft of like, well, at least he wrote something. Also, we did learn very early on that Jesse fancies himself a poet. Uh, and he's he yeah. he he a quotes writer. poetry. Yeah, yeah. He quotes <laughs> poetry. <laughs> yeah. I think he ever played some well, rock uh, well, well, I think oh, he does the equivalent God. in his little yeah. piece of shit Ooh. way. Yeah. Say more about that, please. Which one? Talk, talk, talk to us about how he's like Ken playing playing Matchbox Twenty on the bon, at the bonfire. I, I think he thinks he's cool. I think he has talents that he uses out of place and obnoxiously. You know, mm-hmm. he just like really wants to show the per- like he really wants to show mommy what he learned on the piano. You know, like that's what it gives, and we all do it. It's okay, but. Yeah, he definitely like, does it. It's like he's forcing and he knows he knows he has like five or six really insightful lines to say. And he's just he's been looking for the opportunity to say this really deep thing. Yes. He just has you been got it. cooking in his back pocket for like the last three I've hours. I've been waiting for this one. <laughs> Which I mean. But she does it too. Yeah. I was like, yeah. ladies, gentlemen, have we all not been there? Been trying They're to impress so someone. relatable. She, she walks him it's to fun. a graveyard and gives him this yeah. practiced yeah. speech about how she felt about this, you know, this girl that died at 13. She's doing it. She's doing it she, too. It's just a little bit more subtle when she does it. Oh, but to you guys, that's what's funny. And that's that's what's <laughs> yeah, so hilarious. Yeah. Like every girl watching this movie is like, oh girl, like I know that when I played that at you know the field the other day. Oh, like <laughs> actually, that's a uh, oh, did you? Um, no. <laughs> uh, that is something that I've uh, actually forgot to put in here to bring up. And my answer, I'm already gonna, uh, you know reveal my side of it i think no uh, lowercase no is celine a little bit of a manic pixie dream girl oh my god just please watch the second movie (laughs) but every girl is a manic pixie dream girl when they first meet a guy they're trying to impress yeah i think she's she's not one but she's playing into some of the tropes uh, of because, course, because there's a reason why that that yeah. they work. Yeah, they, they work. They're attractive. <laughs> they are attractive. You are attracting a mate, but it's exhausting. You you, you can't you, keep that shit up. The people who stay together are the ones that found something sustainable underneath it. But you still got to do your bird dance, okay? <laughs> yeah. Well, and she's also like playing up the fact, that, like I mean, right away she's like, "This is an American." She's like, "I'm going to play up how exotic I am." Mm. Like she's playing that role so well. Where like, you know, with, I mean, with her French friends, she's probably not quite at that same level of pixie, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that's why I would say like, no, not com- like, not truly, but yeah, it could, because she's playing it up. She knows that like, oh, and <laughs> uh, without getting into too much details, like I've been the foreigner too. And I, I play up a little bit, like I'll drop some y'alls every once in a while. Yeah. When I'm the later. Like, mm, yeah. Well- later it's so it's so hot no trust me i love it but i make fun of it now but like they play into it and even their phone call their fake phone call to their friends shows that they're 
you know, meta, self-aware. Yeah, yeah. It's got this very 90s, mm-hmm. like, ironic uh, tone of, like, oh, I'm going to do all the tropes. Like, I know I'm doing them. So that means I'm very cool and hip about it. No, but what's Ooh. also smart about Linklater is that, like, this is the truth of the matter. Like, you're getting to know them, you know? Like, this is what you're seeing for the first hour of knowing them. And then in the next movie, it's nine years later. And, like, we're getting to know them a little bit better, you know? Yeah. Yeah, so, I mean, I'm really looking forward to checking out the next one and seeing where this heads. Um, me too. We've talked about them so much that I am totally going to feel like I'm visiting old friends. Oh, that's nice. And that, that's like yeah. what you want from a really well, like, well-written characterization. Absolutely. Where you feel like uh, you're you're actually engaging with real people. Or actually, a fun example of that on the flip side is like, do you remember when Tar came out and people thought Lydia Tar was a real person for a while on the internet? She's real to me. <laughs> You need to see Tar. Tar is great. Okay. Oof. Um, but oh, uh, one last bit, and Jared, I'll uh, I'll see how you feel about this because you might have disagreed. Where, uh, especially on the first watch, a little less so on the second watch, but I still notice it. Like in the whole like dreamlike, so there, there's a dreamy quality to this. There's kind of a, a liminal, kind of consequence-free uh, zone that this movie sits in, and I think the passage of time in this film kind of represents that too, where I felt like time took too long through this film, or at least what I'm used to in traditional like passage of time kind of films where I almost think like the, as much as the characters didn't want to happen, like the film didn't want the sun to rise again because it's, you know, it's before sunrise. So, you know, when sunrise hits the shows, like not only this relationship is over, but the movie's over too. So that was always like a, a running clock in the back of my head of once nighttime hit, it's like, okay, once the sun <laughs> yeah. rises again, like we're done, it's over. Um, and I felt at least that time slowed down at night. Um, I, what Did you guys feel that way or was it just me? Maybe I was just too enraptured by their sweet, sweet chemistry. Um, yeah, I'd love to comment on this because this is actually my favorite aspect of this film is the way that they interpret and express time. I feel like this is the most intimate version of time on a, in a movie. Cause I think we're so used to movie scripts, skipping ahead days, weeks, mm. lifetimes, etc. And this felt in real time. I felt like I was getting yeah. to know them. I was following through them through the streets. The cinematography is a big part of this too. The shots are long. They're, a little wobbly they're following them longly down the cobblestone or you know we, we get that long shot of them in the you know the listening booth mm. and we, we stay <laughs> a little too long like we're watching things that we shouldn't be watching we're part of experiences that we wouldn't normally see like we see snippets of people's lives while we're passing the street we don't usually get to like really sit and watch a day in their life mm-hmm. so in that sense I don't know. This was that was my favorite part of the whole thing. Yeah, was how long yeah. it felt. Mm. R- r- yeah, run, running theme. I I'm with Clara on this. I, in fact, I watched it the second time after you made that comment, and I I watched it trying my hardest to see that. And now I think this movie is unusual and remarkable about how realistic the passage of time is in it. Like it uses the filmic language to actually approximate real time, even though they're squeeze, squeezing mm. twelve hours into an hour and a half. Um, and no, I mean, to your point, like there's more darkness in it. It's just because like the sun's about to set already at the beginning of the movie and they leave first thing in the morning. So yeah, 
like re- like actually they are spending far more time at night together mm-hmm. than during the day. And yeah, I, I, I think that what makes this movie cool and special and sort of play like is that it does approximate real time uh, to far greater lengths than 99.99% of movies. Yeah, I think you guys are both uh, hinting at something that is why I thought it was slower because I'm used to faster in movies. So yeah. when something slows down to try to emulate real time for me it felt stretched and long but i think you guys are right that i is... love that awkwardness though because mm-hmm. that's what made it feel so real mm-hmm. and so separate from other movies yeah you you're, fill you're the time with something <laughs> yeah you're getting yeah. like the down quiet moments it's not always like the uh the high sexy plot driven moments of the film it's it's him just walking talking hanging out like not every single conversation they have directly relates to moving the plot along. It's just them kind of wandering through. So I think that like wandering sense in the film is what made me feel like it was like resisting the the passage of time. Uh, okay, uh, to your point, uh, I do agree that the characters imbue their scenario, like the actors imbue their scenario with that sense of almost foreboding, like they don't want the sun to rise. Like that is certainly there. And I also, like you did, I felt that ticking clock the entire time watching it and not me, me as a viewer, not wanting the movie to end, let alone them as the characters, not wanting to be a part. Like I, uh, I love this movie so much that I feel like I was, what I was feeling was an approximation of what they were feeling. Mm. And I think that's gorgeous about this movie. And I think that only can happen because it's committed to approximating real time. Yes. And that's, ah, ex- oh, yes. I feel like you just put to words exactly how I felt. That's exactly why I like it so much. Well, look at us finding new truth by all collaborating. I'm very excited about this next thing that you wanted to talk about, Dan. Final shots. So, yeah, the end of the film after, and actually, um, that's what I was going to say about the passage of time, where it makes the end scene on the train, trains the most romantic form of public transportation, um, so impactful that you along with the characters are feeling that ticking clock, and now the alarm has finally gone off. And now... Like the dream is over. They got to wake up. They got to go back to their own lives. Oh, it hurts. And, uh, and you just see that like panicky rush in both of them where it's like, oh, we got to like, like I, I specifically think of like the way their hands are on each other when they're talking, like they're getting their like last touches in with one another, like just like yeah. really savoring it and talking to one another. Like, it hurt. Yeah. And then, you know, they part ways. They, they agree to show up in six months. And I do like that like the movie doesn't really settle on, you're not really sure if they'll actually follow through on that. Uh, yeah. You would like to think that, but you could also think they're just kind of saying that in that moment, they're passionate. Like you're never really sure. I didn't leave certain that, oh, they'll definitely see each other again. But then with that mood or that thought in my mind or that feeling, then they go to shots of locations in the film that you had seen before, except now there's no one there. And um, it's just shooting Vienna over and over in uh, locations that they were at. And it, it caused me to think about like, dude, this is an ancient city. This, it, it's, this architecture has all been there for hundreds of years, for generations. And then it like made me reflect on like, how many times has this story played out in Vienna before? How many, like, mm. how many of those, like, and I'm sure you get this feeling too, when you're in like a very big city and you see a lot of people around, like how many stories are existing like right in front of your eyes all the time. Right. How like dense is an ancient like 
historical city with human romance, human tragedy, human joys. Um, and I think those last shots were kind of highlighting that by this like really emotionally intense experience that we all just went through. It's kind of pointing to, yeah, this, this community is just so rife with it. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And yeah. And just from like a, a technical perspective as well, it's like, so much of this movie is like in movement. The camera is like constantly moving with them or like viewing them in like from so many like different interesting angles and like that sort of thing. And then finally when the city is without them, it's just like static shot, static shot, static shot. And we're like having to, you know, relive each one of those moments a little bit. And we as viewers, like we aren't like, our memory is so fallible and we saw all of this so recently that we're seeing like, like, Oh, what were they talking about there? What were they talking about there? We're also kind of struggling to, to like make sure that we're like getting that snapshot in our mind. Perfect. Just like they are. Mm -hmm. uh, one thing I will say though, these assholes littered in that park. Yeah, they did. Motherfucking a, like there's probably a used condom by that wine bottle too. <laughs> Dirty motherfuckers littering in this beautiful city. I kind of like them a little bit less after those last shots. If I'm being honest, your twenties, uh, degenerate. And, and like, who hasn't done that? Where like, um, I don't know, someplace where you used to live or so I'll just throw out like, yeah. I just live in Nashville and, when, like I'm gonna go visit there in December for a wedding, and I'm sure like I'll be back there for the first time in like two years, and every location will be just like charged with memory. And now yeah. that's what it is for those two. And it's kind of funny, or it's very fitting with like charged with memory, and you understand that like your memories of the past are always romanticized, or they're they're kind of flattened out to the way that you want to think about it. And the the past 24 hours or however many hours they spent together, like they sort of spent a real life romanticized version that they're always going to think back on. So I almost thought like we're in the position of those two characters already started to think about Vienna and like the locations yeah. in there and like the way they're going to hold on to these memories and romanticize it for the rest of their lives until apparently they meet nine years later. But we didn't know yeah. that during the movie. I'll, I'll be interested in finding out how the, each of them remember that, that time differently. Ooh, do they bring, well, uh, Clara, here's a good, uh, opportunity to bring this in clara please tell us what should we look forward to or what should we have our eyes on for the next two movies and leading with that question of like do they talk about the events of before sunrise and like this sort of romanticized like almost fictional way or how does it work moving forward without spoilers please the reason i love so before sunset is my favorite of the trilogy and you'll hear that amongst the discord of people who like these movies. It's pretty common for people to like the second one better. Uh, I think it's just a really natural continuation. Yes, I feel like every complaint that you have, they are aware of it and they talk about it and they do it. And I even heard that the actors had more say in the script and the dialogue in the second movie and the third movie, which also probably credited to the realistic nature of the characters and the natural dialogue. But I would say that the first movie is about an initial spark, an infatuation, a good initial connection. The second movie is about choices. And the third movie is about commitment. And then all three of them together is just what 
a real true connection looks like. Mm. So are you, are you willing to join us for before sunset or yeah, before sunset next time? I thought you'd never ask. So uh, Thursday, September 4th, uh, 2032, nine years from now, we'll all be back. We'll be back. (laughs) Oh boy. (laughs) Placing, placing bets on our futures there. Um, Yeah. If we're still here in nine years, honestly, that would be wonderful. I'd be very excited Um, if we're still doing this. Well, in any case, we're doing it now, and now comes the time in every show where we talk about recommendations. Like if you liked before sunrise, uh, and you know, let's let's not choose before midnight or before sunset for yeah. a recommendation. Um, I think Clara and I have probably one of the same ones. So Clara, I'd love for you to go first on like what movies you would recommend, or let's just do one at a time. Like what what movie, play, book whatever video game who cares like what what do you recommend to fans of of before sunrise Ooh, i'm glad you said play uh because i would probably say two things i would say if you like harry met sally you would love this movie any walking and talking film is gonna be a good you know second partner to this type of movie very similar very romantic in that same nature I would say if you're into musical theater, that the last five years would be a great mm. recommendation for you guys. Mm. Yeah. Either the yeah, movie you know- or the soundtrack, because the movie not, was pretty. Not close. the movie. Oh, you know the movie. Yeah. Oh no, it's it's bad. <laughs> no, it's no, it's bad. Just listen to the original off-Broadway cast: Norbert Leo Butts and um. Oh, Sherry Renee Scott. But yeah, Sherry Renee Scott. Yeah, his last name's Butts. Um, his daughter's name is Clara. Clara Butts. Fuck you. <laughs> What's her name? I love you. Is that, your, is that your stage name? <laughs> uh, I, I'll second that for sure. Uh, Dan, do you know the last five years at all? I've never heard of this. It's movie. on yeah. the list. Jared, yeah. I created, lot- you, I'm the reason he found this movie. And I, you know, I'm happy that he actually gave me credit because I was going to fight him and I didn't have to fight him. But now it's really coming out. I yeah. He in the first episode, you think I didn't notice that he was like, oh, I just stumbled upon this movie. Like we're gonna do it before sunrise. I just watched it. Like, well, I screamed when I listened to that because I was like, I <gasps> fight him tooth and nail to watch this movie. She beat the shit out of me. I literally took him down like a dog. Like, but <laughs> you're doing good. Okay, Dan. Dan, listen. Like, the last five years is. If you took the whole before trilogy, dark darkened it up so the characters are a little even more like, uh, and then uh, you gave it the the structure of Memento. Oh my! Where uh, part of it's going backwards, part of it's going forwards. It meets in the middle and then keeps going. It's like a oh, Christopher Nolan movie gorgeous. like that. Mm. Um, and it is gorgeous. And there's uh, two like some of the best songwriting in all of musical theater two of the best performances in all of mu- musical theater on that original recording. The movie sucks. Oh, see, we, <laughs> um, differ. we differ. We differ. I'm really critical of movie musicals and I didn't hate it as much as everyone else did. I didn't like like the dialogue, but I thought the actors did pretty good. They were fine. The, the, the songs were good. In my opinion. I'm trying to open this. Okay, here we go. Yeah, I mean, th- th- there's a lot of really good ones on here. Um, 
Oh, actually, did I not? I did I not shout that out in an earlier episode where the the favorite thing I saw in the week before was Chicago. Chicago fucking rules. So yeah, good. So good. Chicago uh, slaps certainly. Catherine Zeta Jones, baby. Was it? He uh, ran into my knife. He ran into my knife twelve times. <laughs> <laughs> um, but Jared, what do you got for recommendations over there? Yeah, I'll, uh, another musical comes to mind, but I'll save that one in case Clara wants to talk about it first. Um, I'm gonna just I'm gonna pick another play <laughs> because this movie is kind of more like a play. Yeah. Uh, so one of my all time favorite plays is a play that I was in uh, in college that we put on as part of like our student theater guild, and actually friend of the show Kate Eastman, who will be on a, a, a future episode. Uh, she and I did this uh, two person play together. And uh, it's very much a brief encounter romance play, but the most fucked up version of a brief encounter romance. And it's a play called Danny in the Deep Blue Sea by John Patrick Shanley. It's basically like if Before Sunrise had the most damaged, traumatized, violent, fucked up people. Uh, And the two of them literally physically harm each other through the play. And um, they're both just, yeah, they're both very traumatized people. And they have this one night only fling. They bare their souls. They put it all out there, right? They put like the 110% version of themselves out there the whole time. And then morning comes and it's over. And there's a reckoning there. And uh, it was one of the more, one of the, like the mo- one of the more fun times I've had on stage because it's just this two person play is just me and this other really amazing actor. And uh, yeah, just having that level of like, we're spending an hour and a half, just the two of us in this one thing. Yes. Uh, yeah. Like that's my own bias of like, I have this amazing, like, you know, amazing experience doing it, but on the page, it's amazing too. Like you don't have to watch it. It's written so well. John Patrick Shanley is the author and director of the movie doubt I love uh, and, I love that movie. And, love and that the movie. writer, yeah, me too. And and the writer of Moonstruck that we're talking about on the pod soon oh, yeah. as well. So yeah, Danny in the Deep Blue Sea by John Patrick Shanley is like the most fucked up, violent, whiskey-soaked version of Before Sunrise. I love whiskey. Jared, you and I, neither of us, and I think that this you were alluding to this, is are we both going to bring up once? Yeah, one, once is is the once, musical version of this. Sh- yeah, clear, clear, clearly, yeah. Um, you you go first. I we're probably gonna both need to gush about once at some length. I don't yes! want to scare thunder. Please yes! go ahead. Perhaps this is when we bring Clara back for an episode on once. You're. I think it's already on the schedule, isn't it? I'm a regular at this point. <laughs> I think once is already actually on the schedule. On it? For, oh my god! Figure out yeah. what week it is. See what you're doing. Thank you. I am honored. <laughs> Until Jared will text me after this, like, why the fuck did you invite yeah, who's her back that for another freak? <laughs> yeah, tell us, tell us about once, Clara. It's a beautiful, beautiful tale by John Carney. And he, I always joke that he's the next trilogy that we need to do because I think he's really brilliant. He's good at creating movies with music that's not falling over a log, which is usually the criticisms that people have when they don't like musicals is they just start singing out of nowhere. John Carney fixes that. And he also brings in these really realistic, heartbreaking characters, very similar to this, you know, two people from different countries, different cultures, different backgrounds, different languages in their origin. 
come together, can be themselves, connect in a really deep, beautiful way, spend a very brief amount of time together, and then, you know, the rest is history. Yeah. And and just some some of the most gorgeous music. Music. Like, ever in an original movie musical. Agreed. Um, and it translated well to the stage. It did really well on Broadway. The cast recording is, is also very good, but... You know, it it doesn't quite compare to the movie, uh, and it I mean the movie the the song that is like the centerpiece of the movie and won the Academy Award for Best Original Song that year is it's just gorgeous. It's like a ten out of ten song. Like I can't imagine hearing that song for the first time and not just completely falling in love with it. I, I literally I, broke I, up with someone for not thinking "Falling Slowly" was good. He, I was like, listen to this song, and he was like, Ugh. he like stopped it halfway through, and I was like. We're over. <laughs> oh, that's that is no all the red flags. Dan, do you know falling slowly at least? No, I, I am. Oh my god! I'm actually now at this point. I'm going to be deliberately ignorant to all this because I want to go into once, which we just checked out. We're doing it towards the end of this year. I want to be blind as a bat going into this one. Yeah. Um. I okay. So instead of just continuing to talk about why I love once, because we're going to do that at some length, and Claire's going to join us. Hopefully, is uh. Uh, my favorite anecdote is uh, again falling slowly won best original song that year going into it everyone knew it was going to win i mean that that song is just extra special like it, it's at least a 10 out of 10 yeah and um uh you know it, it was it's from this movie that cost like fifteen thousand dollars to make yeah. where the stars the stars of it are basically playing themselves and playing right. their own music hmm. and um they're there at the academy awards like john stewart's hosting and they're you know, they're talking about like, oh, I can't, you know, they're like, he's, he's Glenn Hansard is Irish. So he's like, oh, I can't believe we're here. Like this amazing, we're at the Oscars. <laughs> like I, I, it doesn't feel real. I love you all so much. Thanks for having us. Uh, please have us back. And then like they play, they play them off with, with the music before Marquette or Glova is able to, to give hers. And she's like the sweetest, cutest woman, like, like, you know, like amazing musician, but she's like very like uh, unimposing. So she's like, she like, is a little bit afraid of the mic already, and then they play her off, and John and then John Stewart takes a beat, and he's like, "God, those people are arrogant," <laughs> and it's like one of the funniest things. And then later on in the show, he was like, he comes out, he's ready to do his next bit to close the show, and he's like, "I feel really awful." Like Marquette Glova won one best original song. She wrote the song with Glenn Hansard. She didn't get to speak. I'm gonna bring her back out. And everyone gives her a standing ovation. She talks for like several minutes, and what she says is gorgeous. And uh, made me really like John Stewart like more than I already did. And uh, yeah, when, when we watch once, we got to just watch that clip of them winning that Academy Award because it's absolutely fucking heart bursting. Oh, that's so cute <laughs> you say that too, because John Carney's known for like he had a really hard time doing Begin Again, which is his third yeah. of the skeleton of Once. He he creates yeah. the same movie three times it's, it's yeah worse. that's the one with Kira knightley and mark ruffalo yes so he had yeah. a really hard time with Kira knightley because how astounding she is she's also a mega superstar and he was like yeah. i can't deal with that anymore because in his pat in his previous two movies he was working with unknowns you know yeah. raw talent raw everything they are real on the camera they are not exposed to this hollywood glamour leaned back anything he wanted real and it's just funny you said that because mm. like that is the beauty of like his first two movies are like these really just real people. Same as yeah. The Office, you know, very just real people off the street. Oh, yeah. 
sorry to alienate probably at least 40% of people. I hate the office. You're weird. <laughs> I feel like you're one of those people that's like, I hate the office because everyone likes the office. I didn't even like it when it was running. Like I, I saw a couple episodes and I was like, all right, whatever. Jim whatever. and Pam are arguably one of the boring. best. They're arguably no, boring. No, no, no. You're wrong. You're wrong. Yawn. I'm you're tired. Wrong. No, you're, you're wrong. I'm getting sleepy. I want to go to bed. I'm very tired. That's when he's slapping Dan in the face and he just fell to the floor. Yes, there is <laughs> physical violence. Trigger warning, trigger warning. Well, Clara, this has been so, so fun. I, know, I feel like so we nice. have the exact same taste in things. I feel like we're also, you know, ships passing each other at night. Aw. Uh, this is this is wonderful. I'm so happy to have met you. I enjoyed this brief encounter with you, Jared. <laughs> yeah, it won't be brief. We'll be back to talk about more movies. We'll I'll be see back you at Dan's wedding or something. Too. Yeah, and, yeah. Uh, yeah, we'll be back for the, uh, yeah. For the second part of the trilogy. You only get three movies, so choose them wisely. That's true. <laughs> yeah. Oh, <laughs> uh, for concessions, I'm Jared. I'm Clara. And I'm Dan. And keep your encounters brief. Yeah.